Good morning, everyone. We have mostly family here today. Family, monastery family, and then expanded family. Thank you for coming. A few brave souls who ventured out despite the weather warning. Thank you for coming and joining us and supporting each other in practice today. This morning at the breakfast table, I was talking about research on the microbiome. Since I'm revising the Mindful Eating book, it came out just seven, six years ago, seven years ago, but already the research um, has, has uh, accumulated, which means that I have to do a whole chapter on the microbiome because it turns out to be so important in disease and in health. One of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha is the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth is to live as a human being, is to experience suffering, to experience physical pain, mental, emotional pain, and all kinds of anxieties and stresses, distresses. I think in our society, anxiety is probably the, the biggest destroyer of our happiness, a pervasive anxiety about our life and the future, what will the future bring, especially when there are big, what appear to be big changes, like maybe a turnover in an election. And the Buddha said that this suffering, this distress, comes from clinging. Clinging or its opposite, rejecting. Refusing to accept what is true. And people often say, well, I don't want to accept it because if I accept it, then I'm giving into it. I'm yielding to it. But that's not true. Unless we accept the facts, unless we accept what's actually happening, and that's the gr then in that we make that the ground of what we do, we're deluded, and our actions will go awry. So we have to know what is true and not, e not try to cling to something that we want to be true or to reject what is true. It doesn't mean we don't try to change it. Of course, we try to change it if we feel it needs to be changed. But first, we have to accept it completely. In medicine, if people, if doctors don't accept the lab data, then the patient's in trouble. If the patient doesn't accept the diagnosis and then do what needs to be done to cure the disease, they're in trouble. If they keep denying that they have cancer, for example, that doesn't end well. So the Buddha said, fundamentally, the source of our distress is clinging, rejecting, or ignoring, which is a kind of rejecting. I don't, I don't even want to think about it. It's a little disturbing that there's so much false information now being accepted as true, that people prefer to get their information laterally from their friends rather than looking at uh, other sources of information, like scientific sources. One of my friends who's a neuroscience professor up at OHSU, we were saying that maybe 15 years from now we'll be, we'll be saying to each other, oh, remember the scientific method? Oh, that was, that's long gone. Nobody believes in that anymore. So we, we have to be objective, and we have to be objective about ourselves. That's the biggest problem that we have, objective about ourselves. And the Buddha taught clearly that it's our mistaken ideas about ourselves that is a large source of our own suffering. 
So this morning I mentioned that our usual concept of ourselves is a skeleton, which is a very interesting meditation to meditate on yourself as a skeleton. And then that skeleton is wrapped in muscles and sinews, tendons, connective tissue. And then that whole package is wrapped in skin and hair. And then inside that package, where it's hollow, there are organs which are more or less solid, like the brain or the heart, the liver, or the gallbladder, kidneys, and so on. And although they interact, we think of them as being very separate. And we know now, because science has told us this, and if we believe some of what science says, that we know that our genes play a tremendous role in who we are, even how we taste food. So that's one of the things that has been discovered, that some people taste cilantro as terrible as soapy, or tastes like insects, or sweaty socks, and other people really enjoy the taste. About 10% of people find the taste of cilantro very unpleasant, and there are other examples of that. So we know that genes play a large role in our how we look, and, but even in how intelligent we are, what our emotions are. But the microbiome research really changes our idea of who we are. So in a human body, there are approximately 10 to the 13th cells, human cells. And it's hard to count exactly, but it looks like there are at least 3 to 10 times that many other cellular beings living on us and inside of us, mostly inside of us, mostly in our gut. So approximately tenfold more other organisms make us up, which means that only 10% of our genetic material is human, or what we would call human DNA, and the other 90% is other. So it, the microbiome research begins to call into question, who am I? Who, who is me and who is other? What is other? And I think this is just the beginning of, re, of, of discoveries about our interface, our interpenetration with other beings. There are only 10 to the 8th humans on the Earth. So it gives you an idea of how many cells are living in our body, human and otherwise. Who are we, really? What is a human being? We're always changing. We know that our cells turn over continually. We used to, when I was in medicine uh, at first, in medical school, they, t they taught that our brain cells, the number of our brain cells, peaked at about age 30. And it was downhill after that, that they just began dying and we couldn't replace them. We now know that that's completely untrue. So that's one reason people don't trust the scientific research is it's always changing. But it's wonderful how it's always changing. It's constantly taking a fixed belief and opening up that fixed belief into some other new possibility. So we do form new brain cells and new brain connections. How wonderful. But our cells are always turning over. Some of them turn over faster than others, like red blood cells white blood cells. They wear out, and they get screened out by the spleen and the liver. 
when neurons are formed all the time. But what's interesting, when we look at evolution, we, evolution is occurring in front of our eyes in some areas quite quickly. If we look at the microbiome in our gut, the bacteria in our gut, in one human lifetime, so what we call one life, right, for us, the human being that we think we are, the bacteria, which actually make up more of us genetically, turn over one, billion, one million times. There's one million lifetimes in those bacteria. So they can evolve in many ways during our lifetime and change who we are from the inside. We now know that many aspects of health depend on the microbiome. And I mentioned some of the ways this morning that our physical health, because many diseases are related to inflammation, and the microbiome plays a big role in damping down inflammation. So a long, long time ago, when I first began medical school, it was considered kind of weird, weird alternative medicine hypothesis that people had a leaky gut, and a leaky gut was part of the problems that people had with their insides, with their digestion and so on. Now we know that that's actually true, and that the microbiome can help seal off that, if it's a good microbiome in our gut, can help seal off that leakage. And that leakage is what leads to inflammation because things leak in then to our bloodstream from our gut. Bacteria and other things leak in, toxins, and cause all kinds of inflammatory reactions, which are probably at the bottom of things like heart disease and diabetes. So the microbiome plays a role in whether we get heart disease or diabetes, plays a role in whether we are obese, become obese. It probably plays a role in whether people get Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's or autism. Very interesting. The list is just growing by, by, by the month. There's a new one that comes up. Oh, we discovered oh, this. The microbiome does is different in people who have this disease. How how exactly it mediates or what role it plays in the disease? We don't know exactly. But hopefully we'll we'll find that out because there's so much exciting research going on. Also, that may play a role in mood. As I mentioned this morning, a lot of um, research on mice now is showing that what we would call personality characteristics, and mice do have personalities. So that's now quite clear. And they can be read to accentuate those, you could call them emotional aspects of personality or mental emotional aspects of personality. So you can have risk-taking mice that are bred to be extremely risk-taking and mice that are bred to be cowardly. And you can take the microbiome from the risk-taking mice and inoculate it into the cowardly mice, and they become risk-takers, and so on. Very, very interesting. So who are we? Who's in charge? We think we're in charge, right? We think, oh, yeah, I'm kind of in charge of this organism, although the more we meditate, the more we realize, well, I'm sort of in charge. <laughs> I can't even keep my mind from wandering for 10 minutes in the meditation hall, so how much am I really in charge? But our practice gives us ways to begin to be in charge in a healthy way. 
to see who we truly are. What is it that makes us us? And how can we change that in a positive direction? We say that everything begins with thought. Everything begins in the mind. If you think about that, that's really true. Everything that we say, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, loving or angry, starts with thought. Thought is fundamental. And everything we do, whether we hug or punch somebody, that starts with thought. So that's why in this practice we really concentrate on the mind, on thought. And working with that energy we call thought and noticing when it's headed in a direction that's going to harm us and harm other people. And then learn how to change that direction. So here's a little meditation on the microbiome if you close your eyes for a minute. And we'll do a quick body scan and just try to open your awareness to the microbiome, to all the little creatures that are living on or in different parts of your body. So we'll start with the scalp, which is where we often start a body scan. So there are many creatures living in, your, in the hair follicles on your scalp. So just say hello to them. Thank them for whatever role they play in the health of your hair and scalp. Then down to eyebrows. Yes, there are creatures living in eyebrows and eyelashes. <coughs> then eyes. There are microbes in our tears. And then, of course, nose. And some of you have colds, so there might be some microbes in there that you're not particularly fond of <coughs> harboring right now. But you could say hello to them at least and ask them to move on their way quickly. But there are other one beneficial ones in your nose that are trying to help help tip the balance back towards health. You could express your gratitude towards them. Same in your throat. Tooth decay is largely um, based on microbes and eating things that the microbes like and thrive on. So we could greet the healthy microbes in our mouth and the unhealthy ones that cause tooth decay with the knowledge that dentistry is going to shift into probably providing beneficial microbes in our mouth. And say hello to all those microbes. And then just open your awareness to your entire skin and all the little pores and hair follicles on your skin. There are millions of creatures living on your skin, especially in areas like neck creases, elbow creases, armpits, any place you have a little fold, and belly buttons. They love belly buttons. So say hello to all of them and uh, wish them health so that you can have health. <clears throat> in between toes, a lovely place to find microbes. So now we'll go inside. So we'll go into our esophagus, down into our stomach, down into our small intestine, and large intestine. And that's where most of the microbiome creatures live. Billions and billions of them. So greet them. And ask them to help you remain healthy.
And if you wish, promise them that you'll send them the kind of food that keeps them healthy so that you can be healthy. Thank you for doing that little meditation. Those of you who do body scans as regular meditations, you might add your microbiome into your body scan. So this research raises real questions, the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves all the time in our practice. We acknowledge that we're made of impermanence. We're made of change. Is anything permanent? Now we know that this microbiome is turning over so fast. And the question, who is in charge? Who is in charge of my health and my, even my mental health, my mood? And the question, what is loneliness? Really, ask, what, is, what is loneliness? If we have a universe living inside of us, a universe of beings inside of us, if we direct our attention to them, can we be lonely? Or is it only human beings or only certain human beings that we want to connect with and be intimate with? What is intimacy? Why do we have categories of beings that we want to be intimate with and categories of beings we don't want to be intimate with? Really interesting questions raised just by this new research on the microbiome. And it gives truth to what Thich Nhat Hanh said, the Zen master originally from Vietnam living in France, that the self is composed of non-self elements. So with the fundamental question, what is self and what is other? Because that division between self and other, which begins before we're born, although it's more obvious after we're born into this world of cold <laughs> and light and sound and discomfort, the discomfort of being born, so that separation into a separate self is obvious when we're born, but becomes more obvious once we can start thinking. Once words are in our mind at about 18 months, two years, once words in our, in our mind, then that separation between self and other really begins to form. And our distress at that, why won't my mom, you know, my grandchildren, they'll plead with their, with their dad, I want a gummy bear vitamin. I want a gummy bear vitamin. When can I have my gummy bear vitamin? And that just comes from the idea of I'm a self, and I must have something that pleases myself, and not something I don't want. Some I don't want the things I don't want to want. I don't want, and I do want the things I do want. And you, the other, better give them to me. So these other things will make me happy, and you, the other, better give them to me, or I'll be unhappy with you. That begins so early. It's amazing to watch it. I was watching my granddaughter in a swing one day, and she was just blissed out. I was swinging her, and the swing was under a tree, summer day. And suddenly a frown crossed her face, and she said, I want vitamin. It's like, whoa, suffering appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> That's how it happens. The idea of the sweet vitamin comes into her head, and whammo, she's unhappy. So we have the ability to make ourselves unhappy instantly and to make ourselves happy instantly. 
that's the flip side of it, which is lovely, which is one of the reasons we play marimba here, because marimba can change, playing marimba can change your mind quite quickly. And that out of that you learn, oh, I can change my state of mind quite quickly. And then you start looking for the, the things that are non-addictive that will help you change your state of mind towards a positive direction. Walt Whitman said, there's a beautiful poem, Song of Myself, long poem, which used to be very popular in my generation. I think people have forgotten about it. How many young people have ever read Song of Myself? Oh, you have, okay, good. Do they make you read it in school? Yeah, <laughs> okay. So one of the lines is, do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I can contradict myself. I am large, I am multitudes. That's one of the most famous pieces of Song of Myself. I am large, I am multitudes. So the microbiome research gives truth to that. We are like, to the microbiome, we are like a universe, an entire universe, maybe a galaxy. I contain multitudes. I am multitudes. And in his poem, Walt Whitman goes through his identity with all kinds of different people. It's a very long poem. It's very beautiful how he um, expresses in poetry his merging with the life of so many humans and other beings. So I've just, I've just got a few, few lines here to, for those of you who don't know the poem or haven't read it for a long time. I am the sweetheart in the old maid, the little one who sleeps in the cradle, the suicide sprawled on the bloody floor of the bedroom, the blab of the pavement, the tires of cars. I am the marriage of the trapper in the open air in the far west and his bride, a red girl. I am the runaway slave who came to my house. I brought water and filled a tub for his sweated body and bruised feet. The butcher boy who puts off his killing clothes and sharpens his knives. The oxen who rattle the yoke and chain and halt in the leafy shade. What is it you express in your eyes? It seems to me more than all the print I have read in my life. I am multitudes. If I am multitudes, what is loneliness? So in our practice, we look inward, right? We look inward. We look at what makes up this thing we call myself. And we see that it's sensations, physical sensations. So it's sensations of sound, like the sound of my voice that you're hearing now, sensations of color, light and dark, that you can see I am this person in this room. And when this, these pink blobs move, those are my hands. So sight sensations, sound sensations, touch sensations. Oh, when I feel that touch, that's my hand touching my face. And smell and taste. And then thoughts. Oh, those are my thoughts, different from other people's thoughts. Those thoughts are real. And then emotions that arise out of the body sensations and the thoughts. Oh, these feelings are real. These are my feelings and these are real and I must act on them. So in our meditation space, we create space or we open into the space that already exists around those 
body sensations, those thoughts, and those emotions. And we become very interested in the space rather than the content. And we watch the content arise in within the spacious awareness. And when we do that for a while, then when we come back to the content, we have more objectivity about the content. Oh. Okay, well, my knee hurts. Kind of is uncomfortable, but it's not the end of the world. Because we haven't allowed the mind to go from A to Z, from my, I have discomfort in my knee to I'm in my coffin and people are weeping over me because I died because my leg had to be amputated and then I got, you know, how the mind goes from A to Z instantly. But when we're more interested in the space and step back from a content that arises and exists for a while and disappears, then we discover a peace, which is, this morning we were talking about this, almost blissful when you first discover it. It's such a relief, such a relief to let go of the burden of constant thinking and emoting, all the distress that exists inside, subtle or obvious, to let go of it and rest in that spaciousness and realize, oh, this too is me, the space around, behind and in between everything that occurs. So we look inward in our practice and looking at the microbiome and acknowledging it and helping it to thrive so that we can thrive is just one aspect of our practice. But we can take that same looking inward and we can look outward. Does one microbi or does one uh, um, microscopic being in our gut make a difference? No. One microscopic being in our gut doesn't make a difference. It takes, it takes a group. We call it the critical mass in medicine. It has to be a critical mass of, of organisms to either cause an infection, where it overwhelms the body's ability to wipe out the infection, or cancer cells. There's, it has to be a critical mass that the body can't handle, can't destroy. So one micro, microbe doesn't make a difference in our gut, but a group do, does. And that's one of the things they've been tinkering with in the microbiome research. How many new species do you have to put in to, a, let's say, a mouse or a human who has a depleted microbiome, because either because they eat junk food or they got antibiotics, but so for some reason their microbiome is depleted. How many species and what numbers of each of those species do you have to put in to make people healthy again? And they're actually discovering that for mice, and they'll discover that for humans too. So this will be very tailored medicine, tailored to our genetic makeup and tailored to our current microbiome and to change that, whether it's changing it in the eyes by giving us eye drops that will restore a healthy microbiome in our eyes or our ears. Very interesting. So one, one organism doesn't make a difference. And I think that is part of the despair of human beings <coughs> these days is we, because of the media, we know of all the difficulties in the world and we think, well, I, how can I make a difference? How can one person make a difference? Where am I supposed to work? Am I supposed to go to Afghanistan and, and work with women and children there who can't go to school? Am I supposed to go to 
areas where there's Ebola virus, get health training and work there? Am I supposed to go to do disaster relief in areas where there are typhoons like the southern Philippines all the time? Should I go into law enforcement? What? What should I do? Should I just bake bread and make people happy because I bake good bread? Should I work in a library and help disseminate information so people can be educated and not be ignorant and fall prey to the suffering that ignorance causes? There's so many places and so many choices these days. We were talking about this yesterday that in our great-grandparents' generation or my grandparents' generation even, there weren't that many choices, especially for women. Women either were housewives or nurses or teachers. There wasn't much else in terms of careers for women. But now we have so many choices, but all those choices bring anxiety. Anxiety about making the wrong choice. Because the inner critic's right in there saying, oh, don't make the wrong choice. You'll be doomed forever. So how can I make a difference, and where should I make a difference? That's what this retreat that's beginning tomorrow is going to be looking at. What is my heart's aspiration? And how to follow my heart's aspiration? But how to be balanced about it? I'm not going to be able to have the ideal job. That's a myth. Just like I'm going to meet my soulmate and we'll be happy forever and ever and never have any disagreements about anything. That's a myth. Everything is the middle way. Everything is a balance. So can we find a place in the world where we can help relieve the terrible distress and suffering in the world? However we do that. There's a million ways to do it. Can we find a way that takes our particular talents and our particular likes, dislikes, predilections and uses them to our advantage and to the advantage of the world. So one person, I mean, we say often in practice that one person makes a difference that can't be calculated. I think that's true. And people who go through near-death experiences say that in that retrospective that they often describe of their life, the fast review of their life, they see all the things that they did that hurt someone. And then they see from that the spreading waves of when that person was insulted or hurt or you got angry at them, then what they did and what they did and how one action does spread out. One karmic action, so karma means purposeful action. One action does spread out, and we don't control where it goes after that. We're only in control somewhat of what we say or do. But then it spreads out like ripples and affects many people. And likewise, they say in their life review, those who have died and come back, say that in their life review, they also see the positive things that they did and how that spread out. And they say it's not the grand, the grand actions like, oh, I gave $2,000 to some charity, but it's little things like helping somebody pick up their, picking up their spilled groceries. That's, what's, that's what seems to count in this life review. Very in, and they come back changed. That's the interesting thing to me about near-death experiences. People come back changed. And they feel like the most important things to do are to learn and to be loving and kind. And that becomes their life mission. So one person does make a difference. But groups make bigger differences. Right? If we do nothing, then people who have more determination more anger, more pain, 
who are trying to relieve their own suffering by inflicting it on others, thinking that if they pass it off to others, they'll feel better, then those people will take over. They have for generations. What we're seeing now isn't unusual at all. There have always been groups that destroy other groups, try to destroy other groups. The great Buddhist University of Nalanda was completely destroyed by invaders. Many civilizations have risen and then fallen and been destroyed. Pogroms happens. So if we do nothing, and Hogan has a wonderful quote that he has posted in his office. You want to say the quote? When they came for... Wherever we find ourselves, we can stand up. But it's our practice that enables us to do that with clarity and with compassion without creating more distress and suffering for ourselves and others. So here we are, a group of beings, working with a group of beings in this little place, this little monastery, which is you look at the span of time, inconsequential. You know, we've been here for 15 years, and who knows how, la- how long this particular monastery will last. We have no idea. If we look at the reach of time, it's like, this and gone. But our hope is to make a difference for ourselves and to make a difference in the world. And we go back out into society, however we serve in society, whether we work here, or we take the benefit of what we've learned here and take it out to our place of practice and function in the world to make a difference. If we don't do that, then we let the forces of destruction and increased suffering take over. So please practice well and find your place to function in society remember that that place is always morphing, which is part of the adventure. Thank you.